Exodus 34. If you're using the Bible in the pew, this is on page 74, uh, or you can turn or click there. I'm also going to have the passages on the screen. We've been in a series this summer in the book of Exodus, and this is the last Sunday that we're going to uh, be doing this. We're going to be moving into a different thing uh, going into next week, uh, really focusing on what the church is. And it's really cool. I'm excited about this in the sense that uh, all across all across New Life, everybody's going to be doing this location at uh, all the different locations. And uh, I'm going to be doing the first message next week, but then the two weeks after that, we're going to have our different pastors are going to be rotating different locations where you're going to be able to meet some of the other New Life pastors and really just talk about what God is doing in our church and what it means to be the church and just this community of faith that we get to be a part of. So really excited about that. Um, as we finish up this Exodus series, we've um, really been talk, going through this epic story, this epic tale in the Old Testament of how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and established them as their own nation, as a people. And the, re, the f- emphasis that we've been having as we've talked about this is knowing God. Um, How do these stories reveal the reality of who God is, what he's like, what he's about? Um, And I think that this is incredibly crucial for who we are, especially in our world today, is because there's so much misconception about who God is, about what he's like, about what he's like, about what his heart is, about what he's for or not for. Um, Unfortunately, our TikTok theology only gives us really short snippets of information that are not always accurate and many times skewed. And the reality is, is if we want to know about who God is, we have to come back to the scriptures. We have to allow the scriptures to guide us. What, let God tell us who he is through the way that he's told us he tells us who he is. And that's in the Word. That's in the Bible. And so we've been looking at these stories to get an idea of who God is. How do we know him? And some different things that we've emphasized, that God is still working. He never stops. That he hears us and he responds. He is not indifferent. He is not aloof. He is a God who's in control. He is a God who reigns. He guides us. He's with us, holding us, carrying us through. He's a God who covenants. He wants relationship with us. And he is a God who's worthy. Um, Exodus is a big book. We haven't been able to go through every single story. We've been trying to hit on some of the key ones. Um, We're actually going to come back to it a little bit in September with some stuff we're doing. But I want to focus in on this last one here today in Exodus 34, um, ending on a really important uh, theme about the reality of who God is, and that is that God is gracious. God is gracious. That's the idea that we want to focus on today. But before we get into this text, let's pray together and ask God to speak to us. God, we do praise you again and are so grateful for your presence. We're grateful for the fact that we can be here with you together. God, again, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your grace. And I pray that you would show us what it is, that you would show us the reality of who you are. Make yourself real to us, that you would speak through your word this morning, God. I'm just, I'm grateful to be back in this place with these people. I love this place. I love you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church and in these men and women, how you're bringing us to you and growing us and making us more in your image and that you care for us. I pray that you would make all of that real to us this morning. We love you immensely. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, to recap last week, if you weren't here, because what we're going to talk about today is directly tied to what Edwin over last week. And if you weren't here last week, the passage that they looked at is about Israel screwing up big time. 
messing up royally. Israel, Moses went on top of Mount Sinai to get the commandments from the Lord and commune with him. And Israel gets impatient, incredibly impatient, waiting for Moses to return from talking to God. And so what happens is, this is the story that Ed shared last week. Ed did really good last week, didn't he? Like, should get up and talk again in the future at some point, right? Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page within that when I ask him. So um, they get super impatient and they have Aaron, Moses' brother, make this golden calf, this idol. Why was that such a big deal? Why was this them messing up royally? Well, God says it in Exodus 32, verse 4. He received the, golden calf, the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And here's where we see why this is such a big deal. They, Aaron said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you've been with us, if you haven't, we've been talking about this whole summer about how God was the one who saw them in Egypt. God was the one caring for them. God was the one who rescued them. God was the one who defeated Pharaoh. God is the one who's been guiding them and watching over them. And here what they're saying is, no, this calf, this other God, this thing that we can see and manage and who's in our control, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. This is the one who did all of these things. This is the nation saying that somebody else other than God has been doing what God has been doing all along. This, to get a picture of this, this isn't like somebody cheating on their spouse. What this is, is like somebody who's been married for 20 years, cheats on their spouse, and then makes a public statement that the life that they've built over the years is because of their mistress. That's what Israel is doing right now. That's the audacity that they have in this moment to say that this calf that we can see, hold, and touch, this small thing that we made is what's done all of this rather than giving credit. These are the people who received manna from heaven and the, and the quail and saw God leading in a cloud, who saw the plagues. These are the people that saw everything that God did, who just had a mental cramp or something, and no, no, it wasn't God who did that. It was this calf. We need to grasp Exodus 32 that we went over last week is, what, is one messed up story. And God is furious at their behavior. They are breaking the commandments as he's making them. As he's giving these, they're breaking. It hasn't even been 30 seconds. If you've ever been around little kids, I mean, mine are a little older, but I remember when they were little, it was like, oh, the house is clean. Everything's perfect. I, I turned around for 30 seconds and psh, everything's a mess. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. I left you guys for one hour and you've broken everything. Moses intercedes for the nation with God. He then goes back down the mountain from where he was in God's presence to the people who are worshiping this calf. And it says this at the end of Exodus 32. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and then made the people of Israel drink it. 
Moses is furious, takes these tablets that God wrote with his own hand, wrote words on, breaks them in their presence, takes all of it, destroys the calf, burns it, puts it in the water, and says, here's, what you've, here's the concoction which you've created, now drink. Now that seems really harsh, right? Because it is. But that doesn't mean it's not appropriate to the situation. There are consequences for sin. In a culture that does everything to avoid consequences, this part of the story is very important to us. We have to, this is something we have to remember and grasp. God's existence is not dependent on our understanding or agreement with his ways. God's existence is not dependent on our agreement with what he is, how he's dictated things, how he's th said things could be. I don't like that. That seems a little harsh. That God wouldn't do. God is saying there is consequence to sin. They have chosen to do this. And here's the reality of what they've put themselves in. God's, and then this might seem a little harsh, but for a perspective, for a correlation, if you've ever sang along with Carrie Underwood singing about a Louisville slugger being taken to a cheater's car, you can grasp what Moses and the Lord are feeling right now. Because what are the, some of you know what I'm talking about? I saw again, like the paintball comment, some of you perked up when I mentioned Carrie Underwood. Um, this is the audacity of their actions. This is the audacity of their failure to say that God hasn't done everything that he's done and to give credit to somebody else. This is Israel at their worst. This is the context that leads into Exodus 34. What happened in Exodus 32 is connected exactly to what we're going to be looking at today, the backdrop for us to see the gra how gracious God is. The first thing that we're going to see is this, is that God graciously gives undeserved second chances. God graciously gives undeserved second chances. It says this at the beginning of Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. By re be ready in the morning, by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Do you see the emphasis on the tablets here? Go and make two tablets. Now, the tablets that are mentioned, these are the ones that God wrote the covenant out on. These are the ones that represented the covenant. These are the tablets that were broken because of the audacity of their betrayal and their unfaithfulness. Broken not just metaphorically, but quite literally. The tablets were shattered because of their actions. This mirrors the reality of even what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fail and humanity's connection to God is shattered, is broken. This is what sin does. But what does God say? Let's get some new tablets. If the tablets represented the covenant that God is making with them, 
God is saying, let's make sure that there's more tablets. He wrote the covenant with his own hand before. And now he's saying, I'm going to write them again with my own hand. This is God saying, yes, you broke those tablets, but that doesn't mean I'm done with you. You might have been unfaithful, but I still care for you. I still love you. I'm still faithful. Jerry Bridges, we're talking about grace. Jerry Bridges defines grace as God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. This is why I say that God gives generously, gives undeserved second chances. Is that what we deserve is what the consequences of our sin. But God's love isn't dependent on us keeping things together. God loves us even when we break things. God loves us even when we mess up. And when our mess-ups are so big, when our mess-ups are huge, they will never get big enough that they break God's love. Other scriptures talk about this. It says in Psalm 86, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Now, there's a lot of other passages in Scripture that talk about these same things, but I wanted to focus on two Old Testament ones. Because typically what can be misconceived by sometimes is the God of the Old Testament is this mean, angry, raw type of a God. And the God of the New Testament is really gracious and love and fun to hang out with. Not accurate. God is the same throughout all the scriptures. He, doesn't, he hates sin. He gets furious at sin, as he should. But what does it say? God, he does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. God loves us even when we break the tablets. Even when we mess up. So know this. God gives you more and more and more and more second chances. God doesn't give up on you. Know this, that God is the one who wants to give you a second chance, that wants to keep coming to you, wants to keep pursuing you. He does not hoard shame over you. He wants you to come to him in grace. God loves you beyond what you can comprehend. And it doesn't matter what, it does matter what we've done. But God loves us still. God loves, God loves you God loves you. Yeah, but I've done this. He can't. Yes, he can because he chooses to. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And there's nothing that you can do, have done, or will done that will break his love. It will never stop. He is the gracious God who keeps giving us second chances. And why does he do that? Well, that's the next thing. That God's grace is just who he is. God's grace is part of who he is. It says in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now remember, this entire series in Exodus has been about knowing God. What is he like? How does he reveal himself? And here, this is like his calling card. This is like, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. This is the God that we're worshiping, talking to, whose presence that we are in. He is a God who is merciful. A God who is merciful. His, he is gracious and loving toward us, even if we're antagonistic toward him. He is continually, he is gracious. He gives us love and care and his presence, even though it's not deserved. He is slow to anger. He is not reactive. He doesn't go overboard. He doesn't, have you ever been around somebody who has anger issues? It's like, whoa, don't, don't react, let's respond. God never reacts rah, violently to us. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. His love has no limit, and his love has no end. He is abounding in faithfulness. He is unable to go back on a promise, something that he has said he would do. His, he is forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. He is not dispensing shame and guilt. He is removing those things. He doesn't want us to live in shame. He doesn't want us to know guilt. He wants to free us from those things. He doesn't clear the guilty. Now, that one seems to maybe stand out a little bit different than the rest, but actually, it does flow with them. Peter N. says, Forgiveness does not mean overlooking sin, nor does it leave the guilty unpunished. God being merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and forgiveness doesn't mean he ignores sin. It means he deals with sin accordingly, appropriately. We'll get to that more in a moment. But he deals with sin as it should be dealt with. None of these are in tension with one another, and they all work together at the same time. This is who God is. I want you to see the description of God that they are being given. I want you to remember that they are being given this description, this reminder of who God is, when they're at their worst, when they've done their dumbest thing. When they've given God every reason to kick them to the curb and be fed up and done with these people, he's coming to them and saying, I am merciful, and I am gracious, and I'm slow to anger, and my love has no end, and my faithfulness has no ends, and I am going to forgive. This is who I am, and nothing of who I am is going to change based on who, what you do or don't do. He doesn't change who he is because of their mess up. He responds to them regardless of whether they're good or messing up. God is true to himself. They need to be reminded of that in their worst of moments. And I would guess all of us, myself included, need to be reminded of the reality of who God is. Maybe that's the thing you came in here this morning is to be reminded of the heart of God. Or for someone, someone maybe hearing it for the first time. You've always been told God is like this, but God is saying, that's not me. That's one of the things I've been realizing. I'm seeing different people on social media and stuff who talk about their agnosticism or atheism, and they start talking about God. And man, when I hear the descriptions of God, I'm like, man, if that's who God is, if that's what you think, then I'm an atheist too, because I don't believe in that God. 
That's not who God is. He isn't a God who could shame, gives us shame. He's not a God who wants us to feel not no happiness. He's not a God who doesn't want us to live and live life to its fullest. He's not a God who wants us to feel horrible about ourselves and walk through life depressed. He wants to remove shame from us. He wants us to not know guilt. He wants us to know joy. He wants us to know peace. This is who God is showing himself to be. And maybe that's the reminder you needed to hear today or the correction you needed to hear today. We need to remind ourselves not to be afraid of who God is because he is not a tyrant. We need to remind ourselves that we don't have to impress God to receive his love. We need to remind ourselves that God doesn't expect perfectionism. He knows we are going to fail. We need to remember that God doesn't cover us with abounding shame and guilt. He covers us with his abounding love and faithfulness. God isn't asking you to beat yourself up. He's asking you to receive his love. God isn't asking you to complete tasks to earn life. He's asking you to receive the gift of life that he has for you. Like I said earlier, let God show you who he is. Let this reminder begin painting that picture of the reality of who God is. And if you come in, if you came in here today and your view of God doesn't line up with what we just read, I'm so sorry for whatever has caused that. Maybe you've been in a church that overemphasizes rules and laws and, and guides and controls by shame and guilt. That's not what God is for. That's not what God is like. That's not how God wants his people to be. He wants us to know grace. He wants us to know forgiveness. He wants us to trust him, not live in fear. This is who God is. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving and expecting holiness from us. Of course, God is going to be gracious to you. Because that's who he is. God is gracious and he is going to be gracious to you. He is gracious to you. Any idea that we have that we have to earn his grace is a misunderstanding of who God is. You need to know the truth of who he is. He is gracious, which means he's going to be gracious to you. That leads to the last thing, that God graciously forgives and restores God graciously forgives and restores. In the last part, we read that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's going on with that? Well, what happens right after it? That's, that should be Bible reading, Bible study 101, is whenever one verse seems really weird and confusing, don't only read that one verse. It's connected to the rest. And so there's some other verse that helps us understand the confusing verse. Sometimes it's the one right after it or the ones right before it. Sometimes it's a verse a couple chapters later. Maybe it's another book. But don't let the oddness or how confusing one verse is make you doubt what's, who God is. Look for the other verses or get help looking for the other verses. Does that make sense? And so for this, we need to see what comes after it. And what does Moses pray when he hears God say this. In verse 9, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, 
Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. First, Moses responds to being in the presence of God and being reminded of who God is with worship. He hears God say this about who he is. He hears God tell him to go get the other tablets. He quickly bowed his head in worship. When we truly know the reality of who God is, the response is worship. When we truly grasp the reality of the heart of God, the appropriate response is, God, you are worthy of everything. You are amazing. You are awesome. You are worthy of worship. If we don't have that response, we don't truly understand who God is. Moses understands it, and he worships. When we, but Moses also intercedes, prays, not only for himself, but for the nation. He says, we are a stiff-necked people, God. We are stubborn. We are selfish. We are continually failing in sin. We are exactly the type of people who need a God like you with us at all times, walking with us, forgiving us, guiding us. God, we clearly don't have it all together. And if you leave us, we're going to be completely lost. Moses is acknowledging the reality of who they are and their desperate need for God. How does God respond to that? God said, verse 10, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as I have not been created, since have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you are, are, are whom, excuse me, all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That does not sound like God simply leaving them to the consequences of their sin for generations to come, does it? This is God forgiving them, renewing the covenant, telling them that there's more to come for them. I'm going to do marvelous things. I'm, you are going to see awesome things done by my hand. We aren't finished yet. In fact, we are just getting started, God says. I am gracious, I am merciful, I am abounding in love, but sin needs to be dealt with. God, forgive us, we need you, walk with us. I will, and I'm not going to leave you. And this covenant is true, and you are going to see marvelous, amazing, wonderful things. God is not going to leave them in their sin. God is going to forgive them and restore them to the covenant that their sin destroyed. The scriptures tell us that God hears Moses interceding for himself and the nation, and he responds. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus intercedes for us. He is our advocate with the Father. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, All of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them. Because of Jesus, the consequences of our sin is not counted against us. Because of Jesus, we don't have to experience the consequences. It says in Romans 5, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son while we were still his enemies, 
we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. It's because of Jesus that we are restored back to God. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross that we can have that relationship. In the same way that the covenant was broken and God said, go get some more tablets, our relationship with God is broken. And Jesus says, I'm going, into the, going to the cross so that the, what destroyed your relationship with God could be dealt with, the penalty paid, and restoration happen. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection from the grave, sin is, sin is defeated, death is defeated, and we can have a new relationship with God. It says in Colossians, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself, He made peace with everything in heaven on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Because of Jesus, we are restored. Because of Jesus, we have life. Because of Jesus, we are going to see marvelous things. Because of Jesus, God says, I'm going to do amazing things that you're not going to see anywhere else. Are you trusting in Jesus for your life? Because that's the reality. So many of us in our world, the world, our culture, tells us to trust in other things for a marvelous life, for an amazing life, for a life that gives wholeness and healing and purpose. And there's so many things that are great and fun, but all temporary. It's only in Jesus that our hearts have what they're craving. It's only in Jesus do we have the life our hearts long for. It's only in Jesus do we have hope that goes beyond the worst of circumstances. Because anything that we hold on to for hope and life and meaning is fleeting. What can let us down? It might not show us its true colors right away, but it eventually will. It doesn't do what we want it to. Only Jesus can give our hearts the life that it longs for. Only Jesus can give us life now and forever. You need to trust in him. He graciously forgives and restores, but we have to receive that forgiveness. Ephesians tells us that grace is a gift. We don't earn it. We don't complete a checklist. We don't fill out an application. We just come to God and say, God, please forgive me. I believe in you. I'm trusting in you. That's receiving that gift. And if you've never done that, I pray that today's the day that you find that life. God is a gracious God. He, he gives us more second chances than we can comprehend. It's who he is to show us grace. And he will forgive and restore. I don't know what type of brokenness you are dealing with this morning. Maybe you're in the midst of it thick. Maybe you're dealing with it because of somebody else's brokenness. Maybe you're dealing with the reality of a broken world that we live within. But I pray that you see and you feel the brokenness to have that reality of your need for God who restores brokenness, who fixes, who heals, who gives us life. Because he's the God that says, let's make things new. Let's restore. Let's put things how they should be. Let's give you the life that you were made to have. I pray that if you have, aren't living that life, that you receive him this morning. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you for who you are. We praise you for the gift of life that you give us. God, we praise you for your grace. God, you love us. You care for us. 
You love us and you care for us perfectly. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to who you are and remove the skewed, wrong, unclear ideas that our world talks about you and says about you. Let us see the reality of who you are from your word, your grace, your mercy, your abounding love and faithfulness, God. God, I pray for anyone that is following you in here this morning. I pray that you remind them of who they are in you. For those who don't know you, God, let today be the day of salvation where they find life in you, that they receive the gift of grace that you've given them. God, for all the things that we're carrying, for all the things that we're struggling with, for all the things that are heavy, God, I pray that you would give us confidence to come to you for guidance, for strength, for help. God, for all the amazing things, I pray that we would trust you for strength and guidance and help. God, I pray that in this last song that you would just let us know that you are here and that you would hear our hearts. We are thankful for the gracious God that you are. In your name, amen.